Welcome to View from the Pool. My name is Robin McLaughlin. I'm your host. And today I'm joined by Helen Bull, who is the National Aquatics Commercial Manager for Serco. So good morning to you, Helen. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Let, I think maybe we just better start with if you can outline to me what your current role is with Serco, because my understanding from talking to you before is this is a relatively new post, possibly a very new post, and you are not long in post. That's a lot of posts. So <laughs> what can you tell me? Gosh, yes. Um, it's been a whirlwind of the last couple of months. Um, this is Serco Leisure really putting their stake in the sand around changing the title of the person that heads up aquatics. Um, previously, the, this role was head of aquatics, um, whereas now they have changed it um, to include the word commercial. And this is about Serco saying the industry has changed, the industry has moved on largely due to COVID, but as well, historically, um, many operators would have people run aquatics, but there wasn't always a commercial focus to that. Um, and that's what appealed to me about Serco Leisure that um, I'm sure we'll get into it in a bit, but my background, whilst is aquatics based, I've also got a really um, long commercial background working with big US companies. And so what appealed to me coming to Serco was that, wow, I can share this love of aquatics I've got, but I can also bring some new skills around the commerciality side of things, how much profit our products make, the income, um, a lot of those analysis that just hasn't been done before. Um, so it's a really exciting time. I think Serco Leisure are really brave um, and I, I hope there will be a knock-on impact around the industry that we have to change, we have to evolve, and we have to move forward. Was Do you think, was the driver for this from Circo's point of view, was it because you know, COVID had happened, it was just, it was good timing, it was an opportunity for Circo as an organisation to have a think and do a bit of a reset because of COVID? Is that really what you're saying? I think it's a combination of things. I think um, Circo Leisure will reach in those conclusions anyway, and COVID um, has sort of sped up those thoughts, I would say. So the, the, the role itself, how many pools does Circo operate roughly? Now, I'm not asking you to give me exactly. So currently we operate 30 pools. 30 um, pools. We have um, over 50 centres on the portfolio yeah. um, and 30 of those have pools. So, so that's a lot um, of swimming lessons. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's uh, well, you can imagine how excited I am. Um, I did some maths last week and worked out as a consequence of our centre closures due to COVID, um, we have had over a million swimming lessons that haven't been delivered um, as, a, as a direct impact of those closures. Um, it's it's so sad. It's heartbreaking. That's a scary figure for 30 pools. If you look at yes. the, you know, what are we looking at in the UK? Two and a half thousand roughly, you know, commercial pools, if you want to call it that. Yeah, that's a lot absolutely. of lot of kids who have missed out it on is. That's, it's, that, you know, that over life a skill. Million, a million children that have miss that opportunity to learn a life skill, miss that opportunity to learn how to be safe in the water, how to help someone else in the water. Um, and, and that's going to take some time to pull that back. It's, it's not just about catching it up. It's, it's so much more than that. It's a, it's a year's worth of children, of parents with new babies, toddlers who haven't done those preschool classes. It's 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 massive and we're going to be be repairing this for a long time to come yeah i think i think the fallout's going to take a little bit of time but the beauty of this industry that we're in is that we kind of all share experiences and the, the strength together and, and move move together forward as, a, as an industry because everybody's in the same yeah. boat should it be yeah. the local authority that has one pull to your circles and your everyone actives of the world it's, it's a big yeah. a, a big uh, big job for us all to cover um, now, yes. I did I did hint there, you are not that long on post then. I'm not very new. Um, still within the first weeks in the role. <laughs> okay. Um, still going through the onboarding. Um, my, my most recent role prior to Circa Leisure was GOL. So I am gradually shedding my green skin um, and, and growing my Circo Leisure skin. Um, very different brands, very different operators. Um, feel a bit like rabbit in the headlights still, um, but every day um, life at Circo Leisure is starting to feel more normal. <laughs> I've changed jobs a few times in my career, and it always surprised me whenever, let's say, I went from 
assistant manager back in my leisure management days. I went from assistant manager in one leisure centre and then moved to assistant manager in another leisure centre. I was only 22, 23 or whatever and thinking that it would be identical and the culture shock of going from one organisation to another still to this day amazes me. I, I find it very disconcerting. At the time, I didn't yes. see it as the opportunity to do things. I just find, well, this isn't the same. This isn't the way I used to do it. You know, I looked at it negatively rather than as I would do now in the positive way that will yeah. you know, learn and, and move on. So, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. It's surprising how um, leisure operators can be so different. Yeah. You know, ultimately looking in from the outside, you, you look at the, the big operators in the field, GOL, um, Circo Leisure, Freedom, SLM, all of those, you look at them and they all kind of, do the same thing to an to an outside looking in, but actually when you when you're involved in that organisation, the, the behaviours, the values are, are all so different, and the ways of doing things. Um, or, you know, there's there's pros and cons to that. There's some stuff that I I absolutely loved about GLL, um, and some stuff that wasn't so great. And same with Circo Leisure. There's been a lot that I've loved so far, and as time goes on, I'm sure I'll find things that aren't so great. You know, um, it's, they're all so different. Yeah, it's about using your experience and taking the good and moving it forward. And, and funny, that's seems to be a bit of a theme in these podcasts. Working with lifeguards <laughs> is that when you talk about Quest and about guys getting involved in Quest and going to a leisure centre and going, "Oh God, I like that. I'll bring that on board." And I think yeah. that's where the industry in general is very supportive of, of um, you know, this movement and coming from whatever other organization it is and yeah. bringing it in and bringing the good, as long as you fit in with the, the general ethos of what that that operator is or what that local authority is, it's, it can all be, yeah. can only be good. How long were, how long were you with GLL then? Was that a, a, a long period of time? Um, it was actually a really short time. Um, it was a smidging under two years yeah. with them. So that's um, about a right I time. It's a good time. Yeah, yeah I, it was, you know, I, I, it would have been very easy to stay there. Um, but this opportunity presented itself. Um, I was kind of, the timing was quite unfortunate in that obviously we've been shut for most of the last 12 months. So actually, when you look at the time I was operating within GOL, you know, it's a little over a year, really, and a year, <laughs> mostly furloughed. Okay, well, listen, I know little bits of your story, and I think people listening in are going to be fascinated by this. But let's let's just rewind this whole thing and take us back to how you got into swimming. Let's say first of all, and then how you got into being your first lifeguard. And you did mention to me off air, so to speak, bronze medallion. So I think we're going to have a little bit of a good conversation about that. So you take it away. How did you get into swimming? My gosh! So um, as a child, I was a swimmer. And then into my teenage years, became a competitive swimmer. Um, and at the age of 16, I was on the national swimming team um, for GB. Um, didn't have a very long career in that I, I had great success in the time I was in national team, um, but then was just plagued by by injury um, and then discovered beer and boys. So I, I ended up retiring <laughs> from competition at 19. That's probably um, a very common trait in swimmers, though, isn't it? I mean, it's a tough old gig, you know, for a teenager, you know, I've spoken to quite a few teenagers. I mean, and, and I've sat on as a lifeguard watching these 12 and 13 year old lads and, and girls powering up and down every morning at half five in the morning, you know, and you go, what the bloody hell would you want to do that for? So, I'm, you know, there's obviously a big drop off. Yes. And it, it was brutal, mm. you know, um, it was the days before lottery funding. Mm -hmm. um, of course. I would be yeah. up at four. 4.30 every morning, um, walking the three miles to my local pool, um, would be swimming a couple of hours before school, then doing A-levels. Um, and then because to pay for my training, um, I got a part-time job at a local supermarket stacking shelves. <laughs> All whilst as a national team swimmer. Um, wouldn't happen these days because no, there's no. a lot more support. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It, it taught me so much. It taught me a work ethic from a really young age. Um Although I did hit the conclusion quite early on that stacking shelves at a supermarket wasn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I was proud that I was the only female in the supermarket that could pull a pallet of baked beans. Oh, right. I was strong enough Excellent. to pull a pallet. <laughs> no one else could. Um, but the as, as is often the case yeah. in aquatics, um, the opportunity came about to train as a lifeguard mm -hmm. and to sort of work part time as a lifeguard. That's easier than stacking shelves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was at the pool anyway. Might as well work as a lifeguard. Um, and as you know, the industry was very different then. 
Um, and what was the norm back in the, the late 90s? Well, I was going to say um, it was 95, 96. Um, you go down the bronze medallion route. Um, and so that was my first lifeguarding qualification. Um, and yeah, just started picking up shift. And then when I did retire, it was that natural progression to go and work in my local leisure centre as a lifeguard, um, swimming teacher, um, duty manager, that's that kind of thing. Um, so you kind of fell into the role as well, just by guilty by association nearly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, friends were lifeguards, you know, club mates were lifeguards, all of that. But so I retired at 19 and I was very... I had very itchy feet as a 19 year old, didn't want to stick around leisure, um, thought there was more to the world than working at a leisure centre. Funny how things come full circle. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> um, an opportunity presented itself to apply for a job at Walt Disney World in Florida. Um, I'd visited as a 14 year old and I remember saying to my mum and dad, when I'm older, I want to work here. Um, and then I saw an advert. Um, at 19 for lifeguards to go and work at Disney's water parks, um, which was at the time Disney had three water parks, Blizzard Beach, Typhoon Lagoon and River Country. Applied for the job, um, never imagining I'd be successful. At the time, and this was the spring of 1998, we knew that they hired 36 Brits a year to go and work at the water parks out there. Was that the quota? It was always 36? Yes, it was at the time, and obviously this was pre nine eleven. Um, so sadly, they have since stopped yes, um, the program course, that right I enough. was on. Um, so because I'd got National Swimmer on my CV, um, mm -hmm. Disney liked that. Yeah, um, that, and that would open the door. Stand out. Yeah. <laughs> so got the job. Um, couldn't believe my luck as a twenty-year-old as I was then, packing my bag, um, flying out to Florida to move and live the next couple of years dream come true on, on, on disney property <laughs> yes yeah disney um have their own apartment complex so you stay there um at the time it was 65 dollars a week rent which just looking back is just the stuff of dreams isn't it <laughs> and um tell me something did you ever do uh, any training for that disney stuff in your bronze medallion situation um training <laughs> Gosh, no. Um, bronze medallion did not prepare me to be a lifeguard at Disney. Um, as it was, the, the prerequisite to the job was holding the bronze medallion. Um, and then when you get out there to work as a lifeguard in the States, it's very different setup. You have to be licensed and they have different organisations that you can be licensed with. At the time, Disney were using Jeff Ellis and Associates. Yep. Mm -hmm. So um, I went through the Ellis and Associates training programme. Um, and qualified out there very different to the bronze medallion and, um, sorry just a butt in there jeff ellis he's mr 1020 isn't he yes yes okay okay <laughs> we'll come back to that we'll come back to that so yes but, that's how, how it all began <laughs> how it all began so you you went out there with your bronze and then disney basically put you through another program to get you up yes. to the standard that they were comfortable with yeah. or not yes. saying it was better or worse but that that was just there that was the bar they set yeah, it was a very different syllabus. Um, I remember very clearly the sheer volume of CPR training that we had to do as part of the, the Ellis programme. Um, you know, compared to what I'd done with Brass Medallion, it, it was just game changing. What was the shock to the system? Um, I don't remember back then how many hours of ongoing training you had to do for Bronze Medallion. Um, Probably none. These days it's <laughs> no, I don't think there was. No. Um, obviously, these days, it's your 20 hours ongoing training um, for your MPLQ. But back then at Disney, you had to do two hours training at the start of every single shift. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. So, you know, the park would open at nine and we would be there at six in the morning doing training six to late. Talk um, about getting in the groove. Yeah, it was... It was looking back, I mean, I was physically very strong, very mm. fit on the back of my swimming career. Yeah. I remember I used to sort of shrug about it thinking, oh, my gosh, this is hard work. But actually, looking back, it was so good that we were so prepared for any instance that happened that Disney are very clever, that you are so trained, so programmed that you don't flinch when you have to go in because you are in multiple times a day on that wave pool at water parks. Um, so they're very clever in what they do. Uh, well, first of all, two hours training, that's a great warm up, you know, no matter what you say. And I'm guessing it was also pretty good for burning calories as well. You might have done with the, the way 
the menus are over there and a few beers. But I think more importantly, I'm guessing a lot of it was um, was a lot of it like situation training, like real life situation training. So it wasn't hypothetical. You, you know, we actually did something in the pool that where you and used historical data of what had actually, you know, incidents had happened to, to, to get you into that zone. Disney do. They obviously have a history and um, every incident is reported on a daily basis. There's some obvious trends there. For example, we always knew um, the deep area of the wave pool we would be in multiple times a day. And exactly that during training, they would put the wave pool on. You weren't told what that situation was going to be. Um, and within that lifeguard and coordinator team, you would have to respond. If you didn't perform to the required standard, that's it. You were removed from yeah. that shift. Oh, really? Yeah. There was, that's it. Boom. Gone. Yeah. It was really brutal, um, but right in that sense. Um well, yeah, you can't have a passenger, I suppose, not at Disney anyway, for, no. not anywhere, but particularly at Disney. Yeah, absolutely. It was, we were so prepared for every eventuality. Um, but that still said, you still deal with stuff every day. But, you know, one of the w- worst rescues I had um, in the wave pool, actually, was a guy who was choking on his false teeth. Um, so we'd prepared. I knew exactly what I had to do for a rescue in the wave pool, but I hadn't prepared for um, someone choking on their false teeth in the wave pool. <laughs> you know? No, yeah, <laughs> not those two together. Um, but yeah, so you're just exposed to some brilliant rescues that I don't think you would get at a lot of other places. You know, it's not like lifeguarding your local pool or leisure waters. It's 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 an interesting part of lifeguard training that I like talking about. I have a, a friend in Australia, Gary Johnson, um, who does what he calls red zone training, okay. and he takes he takes the lifeguards in Australia, let's say from whatever the qualification is. So let's just say for the hell of it, MPLQ, and then he adds to the stress. And what he does is very similar to what you've just described in relation to what went on at Disney, and he puts the lifeguards through their paces so that when it does happen. It's um, second nature. Yeah. I suppose it's a bit like pilots in a in a simulator. Yeah, and put them th- put them through the paces, and I, I think that's probably one of the things we're not great at in the UK. But I think we've we've gone. You know what? This is something we can use and develop and, and take things a bit further. So there's there's probably some interesting times ahead with that one. I think it needs looking at now. Um, hmm. You know, back in the day when I did my bronze medallion, um, I failed the first time. Um, because part of this you know I'm quite I'm not proud to say I failed the first time but it's a story that I'll share because I think it's really important for new guards coming into the industry Um, I failed my bronze medallion the first time because back then part of that final assessment was your ability to read a scenario Um, so we had to wait in the changing rooms we were called to poolside and you had to interpret what was going on Um, I failed because there was bodies floating in the water and bodies laying unconscious on the side as a youngster I thought my priority was to go in and get those bodies out of the water but what I actually hadn't assessed was that there had been a gas leak and it was unsafe for me to go into that situation um so very clever um but it taught me how to read situations and I think that's changed now that um with the current NPLQ part of that final assessment isn't assessing um your ability to react in a scenario or what would you do if this happened um it is built into the ongoing training that um those lifeguards there's certain scenarios that rlss um sort of know that there's options of different scenarios in that ongoing training but for the actual assessment there isn't and i do think that that needs looking yeah. at I, I yeah i would be a fan of that because very similarly i, I remember I actually remember the scenario the first time I did a bronze medallion and it was that it was within a harbour. The pool was a harbour, but one end of it was out to sea and that was the description. And it was about, you know, the bodies in the water, but it was also the, the one where somebody was screaming and roaring and shouting. And my colleague actually failed because he went for the person who was screaming and roaring and shouting because right. there's somebody in trouble. I'll go and get him and completely missed the fact that there was two other people lying face down. And that was a very early lesson for me as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I got through it. That was the bit of the whole bronze that I used to flip and shit myself about was the flipping situation because it was the unknown. Yes. You know, what you am I going to do? Knew. What am I going to do? You never knew. 
I'd love to see that part of a, a an LP, NPLQ again because you know, that really keeps you on your toes yeah. and, and you know makes you think outside the box and yeah. you, that you're not just ticking boxes. But that's for the future, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But I <clears throat> I do say um, you don't know how you're going to react in a real life situation until it happens. And the more scenario practice they Absolutely. can do, it just prepares you for that adrenaline rush and that um, interpretation of a situation. Um, so no, absolutely. I think. Um, I think, and, and you're quite right. You know, you're saying about the the RLSS UK doing for additional lifeguard training. I think where where we can set out the scenarios for the TAs to run through it. And again, I suppose this is the the issue with you have got so many different levels of TA in the UK. The ones who are real eager, fast, big thinkers, and let's do this, and let's do that, and let's do the other, yeah. right down to the ones who just couldn't be arsed anymore and let's just tick the box yeah. and that ref- feeds through to the lifeguard yeah. but i do like what the rlss is doing now and that it was for that some of that additional training that they can go look up you know i want to find out about x and y and z so there's a little bit more responsibility going to be kicked back into yes. the lifeguard yeah talking to joe talbot i think that's going to be one of the exciting things for the rlss in the next 12 months let's say yes but one thing i have to ask you about disney right <laughs> Because this this is quite, it's really funny you should mention this. Whenever I started in this game of um, drowning prevention, drowning detection, etc., there was this urban myth that nobody ever drowned in Disney. Because if there was a fatality, no one was declared dead until they were actually off-site. Now, I know that sounds very brutal and macabre and all the rest of it, but like, was that just one of those urban myths that people made up? Um, no, not an urban myth. Right, okay. Um, well, right, okay. But I think it's more relaxed these days. Um, certainly some of the stuff... Yeah, because we're seen, obviously talking 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. some of the stuff in the press in recent years, absolutely, fatalities have been confirmed yeah. on property. But no, absolutely that. There was a very strict process in place. Um, really? Somebody had to be removed God, I love this. from Disney property yeah. via an ambulance to a certain hospital and they would be certified um, dead. That, that is amazing um, I, I was told that and i didn't believe it but there you go you've just confirmed um, that now one, again one thankfully Disney's... it's 25 years ago plus yes exactly that <laughs> it's certainly you know walt disney was famous for um having a lot of ideas around that of portraying that perfection and um, you know as a disney cast member it's all about being on stage being on show and you know customers are guests and Back behind the scenes is backstage and it's you're immersed in this whole world of, of Disney language. Um, I have a very good friend of mine, a, a young fellow who was a, a lifeguard for me as well. And he hit off to, you know, he'd finished his uni and he got the opportunity to go and work in Disney. And even though he was a lifeguard for me, he took uh, he took the dry side option, let's say. And uh, no, he didn't dress up as Minnie Mouse or anything, but he was um, he worked in the restaurants, etc. And, and the stuff that the stories he told me just reflect very much what you've been talking about about the cast yeah and the show yeah. and i found it fascinating you know there's, so it, it must be an amazing place for a young person to get involved in it is there's, there's nowhere else like it i look back now i didn't realize at the time how lucky i was you know um we worked hard but we really played hard as well yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah that goes my, my lifeguarding days weren't that long actually in disney um I know you can see me, the listeners can't. I'm as blonde and as pale as they come. Um, and so <laughs> me in the Florida sun, um, yeah. wow, I fried. Um, <laughs> and it, it You're became... up there with someone with a ginger and freckles, really, <laughs> yes. aren't you? <laughs> you know, no amount of sunblock. We were, you know, factor 100. It was like white emulsion painting me every day. Um, and Boiler I, suit and a balaclava. Yeah, I still fried um, to the point, literally, I was red raw. Um, and so... Um, that kind of did me a favour, actually, in that I then got moved into an indoor role um, in guest relations. And that's kind of then um, how that started my career with Disney and, and opened up to all sorts of things. So actually, I've got um, being blonde. How long did you Disney then? Is that um, I was out for um, <laughs> just so under got, two got years. Got you off the deck and into something um, else. Had the time in my life. I could only stay for a certain amount of time because I was on a J1 yeah. training visa. It was yeah. a specific programme. Um, but I knew I wanted to stay with Disney. Um, I was Disney through and through. Cut me in half, I would okay. have led Disney. Um, but the <laughs> only other option... Mickey Mouse. Yeah, that's it. Um, the, the only option was to then um, transfer over to Disneyland Paris. Um, so I had three years working at Disneyland. Um, very different. You went to Disneyland Paris then? Yes. Right, tell me about that. <laughs> very different. Wasn't involved in lifeguarding or aquatics. I was in theme park operations. 
Um, I was the person um, in the Magic Kingdom that would say, right, hit the hit the go button on the parade. And um, I was juggling all those logistics. The most common question that we get asked at Disneyland was what time does the three o'clock parade start? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah um, that's that's interesting. We joke that customers, yeah. you know, often leave common sense in the car park. Um, yeah, of course. They're yep. just so that's... overwhelmed with everything going on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had three wonderful years at Disneyland. Did you usually say half two, by the way? Yeah, yeah. we, we did With have some two. fun with that sometimes. I bet you did. Um, <laughs> people just, you know, they're so overwhelmed with everything that's going on. They just don't think, um, you know, the parade's at three o'clock. What they actually meant was what time does the parade come past this spot or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. If I hadn't worked in Florida, I think my Paris experience would have been very different. But I was always comparing the two. Um, yeah chalk and cheese sort of thing yeah that's it Disneyland Paris was very different um the French don't always um deliver the Disney magic in in the same way as they do in Florida um but it was still great experience glad I did it um I got exposed to things that I never would have done um anywhere else um so I stayed there for three years um decided I'd had enough of France wanted to come back to the UK and an opportunity then presented itself um to work for Disney Store um, so I then had five incredible years um, working for Disney Store around the South Coast, um, had London stores, all the southern um, based stores. Um, and that's really where the commercial side of things comes in. Um, Disney run their stores in a really unique way that you're targeted so hard on KPIs and um, success of the stores. Um, and again, just very good grounding around make how to make a business a success and and that side of things it, it sounds like um one hell of a training program when you know when you go you, you only went off to be a lifeguard yeah. Yeah. and all of a sudden you're commercial manager for disney stores yeah. um incredible in not the, all of a sudden obviously but no gradual progression no exactly that and that's what i say to people you know exactly that i went over to disney world to be a lifeguard um and actually then what happened was 10 years of just being elevated into opportunities that I never imagined possible. Um, when you get your foot in the door with Disney, it, it opens up so many different things, you know, and different industries within that as well. Um, just going back to Disneyland Paris, I mean, I've never been. In fact, going to Disneyland is one of my worst nightmares, you know, people in <laughs> queues and stuff. If they give me the place for the day so I could have a go in a few of the, the, the worries, I'll be all right. No, but, um, oh, no queuing, it does my head in. But the... the I presume the weather was very different in Paris. It was. That suited you a little bit better. Cloudy most days. Cloudy most days, yeah. Didn't get sunburnt in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose, you know, whenever you think about it, the cultural difference between the French and the Americans is it is huge yeah. as far as, you know, that, that outgoing OTT personality that you'd probably get in, yeah. you know, California or whatever. Oh, or gosh, in Florida. for sure. Um, the sunshine in Florida certainly helps to create the magic. It sets that scene, doesn't it? Um, you saying about that, there's so many Disney, I call them Disney-isms, um, you know, 20 years on, I still can't point with one finger because at Disney, it's considered rude if you point with one finger. So I okay. still have to point with two fingers um, or your whole hand. That's not left me. Um, and you're not allowed to take pictures of guests in front of a rubbish bin or trash can. Um, that's You can get sort of disciplinary action for that. Um, so there's so many things that have stayed with me, um, not having your back to guests, things like that. Um, yeah, you're indoctrinated into their way of life, I suppose. Yeah. Which, no bad thing. Okay, so let's move it on the next notch. Um, you've been in Disney stores, etc. What was the catalyst for change there then? So, um, again, really lucky, right place at the right time. Um, I was headhunted uh, for P&O Cruises. Um, completely random. Um, I live on the south coast in Sussex, um, and so... Um, P&O Cruises head office is just up the road for me in Southampton, um, but it wasn't somewhere that I had ever aspired to work. Um, they'd headhunted me for the role of commercial manager, um, which for them was a new role at the time. Um, and it was a role that I was based on the ships traveling the world. Um, and I was responsible for the commercial results of all the revenue outlets on the ship. So anything that took money on a ship, um, bars, shops, casino, um photography shore excursions all of that all those yeah all those um revenue streams i was responsible for um so again obviously my disney background had helped prepare me for that if you can run a disney store you can run stuff on the ship um 
and yeah, had had amazing time traveling the world, working at sea. Um, hard work in that it's seven days a week. You don't get any days off. You do four months on, two months off. Um, right, four on, two off. Yeah, yeah. Woo. So, um, and you get all over the world, as you say. So, what you know? Any any highlights? Gosh, you can share no. With me? Um, or is it just all blend into one? Yeah, it does. After a while, that sounds really ungrateful, doesn't it? But you know, um, some of the ships I was on, we were doing what was called track cruising. So you repeat the same um, itinerary for two weeks, offload those customers, get a next lot, and do the same cruise again for two weeks. Um, I loved Norway and the, the sort of Northern Lights. Um, once you've seen them a dozen times, that's really enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, listen, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You've um, seen them once, you've seen them all. So no, I was, I was really lucky. Um, and then another opportunity presented itself to come and work in the head office for P&O. Um, at the time, they were building a number of new ships. Um, and because of my um, retail commercial background, I joined the new build ships team. So I was designing the new retail spaces for the new build ships. Wow. Um, and it was largely focused around, right, we've got this space. How much money can this space take us? What, you know, and building um, a cruise ship can take more money on the cruise than what customers yeah. have paid for that ticket price. Yeah. Um, yeah. Secondary spend is king, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so no, just again, was really lucky with that. Um, then moved from... Um, the new builds team into an HR role. Never planned to go into HR. Um, I think you reach that point in life where you just want a slower pace. <laughs> um, so yeah, then ended up working in HR um, for my last few years with them. Um, yeah, really great company to work for. Really great. And and how did how did P and O pick up on you? If you know what I'm saying, how did P and O discover you? Um, I'm, I never did find out really. Um, I think I was I was certainly known at Disney. Um, I'm not proud to say I was a bit of a bulldozer um, that people knew when Helen arrived somewhere that, you know, either someone was going to get fired or um, cover. <laughs> yeah, I, I could turn around under performing stores really quickly and had built that reputation for myself. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, got wind of that at some point along the, the journey. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was a big deal leaving Disney after yeah, so long. I, yeah. And yeah. all this time, what did you do any swimming or any swimming qualifications or did that just go all out the window no you know you, you'd done that wearing a t-shirt yeah absolutely nothing um the older i got I, the less i wanted with involved with swimming pools i did absolutely nothing um didn't touch a swimming pool for nearly 20 years um and then towards um my last few years with P&O cruises i was diagnosed with serious illness um and I was going through a ton of treatment um, at the time. And a friend had said to me, have you thought about swimming again, Helen? Um, knowing how much you know, I used to love it. I hadn't entered my head at all. Um, wasn't interested. Over time, friends pushed me and convinced me, like, come on, Helen, just get do a bit of swimming. Get, It'll really help you cope with chemo and all yep. that side of things. Um so I rocked up at my and local. You, you wanted center. to swear at them, did you? Did you want? To say, would you just? <laughs> and I did. <laughs> go off and leave me alone. <laughs> it was a bit like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> just wasn't interested, you know. Um, when when you go through cancer treatment, you know, it just wrecks your body and your mind to a large extent. You know, um, just that whole self confidence, that the confident outward Helen that people knew. Mm -hmm. I was a shell of that, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it just it changed everything about me, everything about my life. So friends persevered and eventually I got yeah. dragged um, to my local leisure centre. Um, you can imagine the scene. You've probably seen the yeah. picture on LinkedIn, like bald head, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, just physically struggling, couldn't swim a length, having having gone from national team 20 years earlier to barely being able to swim a length. Um, but I say that that day changed everything. It was the tipping point. Um, I fell in love with the water all over again. Um, sounds really silly saying it, just the smell of the chlorine. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, I was in so much pain at the time. Um, I transitioned into a wheelchair due to complications from the illness. Um, so I was grappling with, with all of that. It just I wasn't in a good place. But that day I discovered something that just opened up a whole new world to me that I hadn't tapped into for 20 odd years. Um, so, and, yeah, your, your illness was obviously a life changing event. Yeah. But your friends who stuck by you and were a pain in the ass, as you thought <laughs> at the time, 
actually changed your life again for the better by yeah. dragging you to a swimming pool and yeah. that then became a completely different focus and way of life for you yeah it did um and looking back actually that day that i went swimming for the first time that that set along so many different changes that then happened as a consequence of that day um in my head, I think I knew I wanted a career change, that I had slipped into this corporate world, which was fine. You know, I was really lucky. You were in HR at that stage, were yeah, you? Yeah, it was yeah, okay. really, really stressful. I was dealing with some, you know, really tough employee relations cases. Um, I just didn't want the stress anymore. Um, Talk about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the months that followed, I started swimming regularly. I was rocking up to the leisure centre, you know, a few times a week to the extent that day was in the March, and then in the following November, um, I competed in um, the first 10K marathon swims at the London Aquatic Centre. Um, so I'd gone from barely swimming a length in the March to then competing in a 10K race, um, you know, sort of six, seven months later. Um, that then just sparked a real love of just, I was cramming in as many a in the pool as I could. It was it it was all consuming in a really healthy way. That it was my way of coping with ongoing treatment, and coping with a stressful job, um, and it was early in 2019. Again, at my local leisure centre, they all knew me by this point, and the swim coordinator knew I used to be a swim teacher 20 odd years ago. And she said, "Have I thought about retraining and coming back into teaching?" Hadn't even entered my head again. I was just loving life being back in you know the pool again um, but she sowed a seed that day that didn't leave me um to the extent um the following september i left my job at pno um i was going to take took, a career break <laughs> yeah so that took well but it was that about a year 18 months yeah yeah so 18 yeah. months after um i first dipped my toes back in the pool decided i was going to take a career break um about a week into that career break i was bored um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay. I, I signed myself up um, to redo my swim teacher qualifications with GOL College um, in the Olympic Park. I'd got my Swim England or ASA as it was back 20 years ago teaching qualifications, but I found it. Um, I really disagree that when you've been out the industry for 20 odd years, you can go back and just teach with the same qualification. You know? I've still got mine. <laughs> and I haven't taught anybody for 30 something years. No, I didn't you, realize you could do that. I might yeah. go back down and do a bit of set up um, a wee class. You know, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to teach a class. I could have, you know, had done my best, but it I wouldn't have been a great lesson. Let's face it. Um, so I, I requalified, got all my STA portfolio of qualifications. Um, and then by this point, I'd got several part-time jobs with leisure operators. Um, GOL had hired me as a swimming teacher. Um, so had SLM, a few other places. Um, however, I was loving it, but um, I was aware I was a swimming teacher in a wheelchair. Um, didn't bother me, but I felt parents were just looking at me a little bit as if like, oh, child's swim teachers in a wheelchair is that safe um, nobody ever said it but i yeah, was just you really felt conscious it. of it so i thought what could i do to reassure them i know i'll retrain as a lifeguard again okay. um turns out no one <laughs> in a wheelchair has ever their mplq and mm -hmm. is a qualified swimming teacher um okay. i couldn't believe no one had done it before um so, well, that, I suppose that was like um, waving a red rag at a bull. You just went, well, I'm having a bit of that. Exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. Um, so give the RLSS their due. They were like, right, what can we do to make this happen? The same for GOL College. The, the team there were amazing. Um, I had to do all the same skills. I couldn't be given any special treatment. Um, we just had to adapt some of the ways um, of how I would do things. For example, I would really struggle to do a straddle jump, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, okay. not, not going to happen. Um, but actually to do a rescue, do I need to be able to do a straddle jump? No, I don't because there's other ways I can get in. Um, and actually because of my swimming background, I felt confident that I could react and rescue far quicker than most people on the course anyway. Um, it was a bit of a shock to the system when I had to do my five metre depth test in the dive pit at the aquatic centre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's always a toughie. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that tested lungs um but no to my absolute joy um passed that qualification um so now i was a swimming teacher and a lifeguard um 
I can own I don't know how to word it, but just to say I've experienced both both the best um from some leisure operators and the worst in that GOL were like, you know, we've got a swimming teacher who's in a wheelchair and she's a lifeguard, great. What can we do with her? Versus um another leisure operator who refused to hire me um because the centre manager didn't want um a swimming teacher in a wheelchair. Um so I had the complete spectrum um and it, I'd never wow. experienced such discrimination before. Um, That's shocking. Yeah. You know, I I accept that um, I can't do high chair positions because I would yeah. struggle to get, I could yeah. get up, but, you know, it'd take me some time to get down. Yeah. Um, but at this particular leisure centre, there was plenty of roaming positions and yeah. we could have made it work and they chose yeah. not to. But that, I was so upset and it hurt me so much that I decided I wanted to make some change in the industry. Um, so then... I applied to be a trustee for the RLSS um, and much to my delight, I was elected um, last October onto the board of trustees for the RLSS. Well done. Um, and the main driving force for that is that I want to make our industry as inclusive as, and as accessible as possible. Um, and the team at LSS are just, you know, we're working together on that and making some really good progress. Do you know what? Um, well, first of all, I'm going to say something because people listening can't see this. The the joy in your face when you started talking about that first time you got into the pool again is you know it's just plain to see, and it, it probably comes through in your your talking as well. You've just because you've got a permanent smile in your face, <laughs> and that's brilliant to see. But what you've just said about you know a lifeguard in in a, in a wheelchair, etc. It kind of it reminded me my father-in-law. Um, he's dead a few years now, unfortunately, but he was a, a governor in Irish water safety um 50 years involved he, he basically i mean he built a, a pool in 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 Bunclody down in wexford because somebody drowned in, in a in the local pool in the local river and he got the community together and they built their own 25 meter pool and he just became you know mr irish water safety and he he, he used to make trips across to England and, and let's get the STA stuff, let's get the RLSS stuff. And he brought it back to Ireland and they adapted it and they took the good bits and mixed it, you know, together with the other good bits to create. And he's quite he was quite open about it. I think he told me one time they went over to meet the STA uh-huh. to find out about their swim and training program. Like this is maybe in the 50s or the 60s or something. Really early days saying, look, we, we, we'd like to get you over to Ireland get the STA into Ireland and he had no intention of getting the STA into Ireland it was just about stealing how they did it and adapt it for the Irish way so it was quite funny but the point I'm getting to was at Jack used to say to me about lifeguarding and pools the way it's gone he says what we actually we actually don't need anybody to swim anymore mm-hmm. he says what we need is people with good you know, good vision and people who can read situations, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And he said, he said, if truth be told, my my idea of a, of a good lifeguard would be a six foot seven paramedic. His that. vision was somebody's in trouble. You've spot them. I'll go and walk over to them. Yeah. Uh, I always thought that was quite funny. But I think what you've just said about you, for me, lifeguarding is all about that initial. It's, it's having that initial ability to spot yes. someone in yeah. trouble. And that, that doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair or not in yeah. a wheelchair. Or whatever, yeah. Um, agree, and and that's why why it's, it's intriguing to talk to you. That that let let's take the the view of that particular manager who who um said I don't want a lifeguard in, in, in a wheelchair. Like you know, I'd like to say, well, you know, what's your reasoning? You know, is yeah. it because of image, or or is it because you don't think that person can affect a rescue? Whereas I would be looking at, I'd be thinking, going, you're probably more alert and switched on. Yes than many's a lifeguard yes because you're conscious of being better than yes. anybody else yes would that be fair comment yes you're so right um exactly that that i guarantee i can move around the poolside far quicker than anyone that's walking you know yeah. <laughs> um, wheelchair the lot into the pool yeah, yeah geronimo yeah gosh yeah <laughs> we have had a few near misses yeah, um, i bet you as you can imagine <laughs> uh, but exactly that i'm so self-aware of it that you know, my response time is super fast. Um, my skills are super tight. All of that. I have become an expert at risk assessments <laughs> in the last couple of years, you know, and that's fine. It, it's a tool that actually we use to exactly that, identify what are the, those risks. And we identified that I couldn't do high chair positions and, and things like that. Um, but no, you know, it, it does go back to what do we perceive normal average lifeguard to look like? 
you know, exactly that. Um, yeah, Baywatch but, and all that sort of stuff, yeah. you know, that's what most um, people think of and think that most people think that what drowning looks like is what they saw on Baywatch. Yeah. You know, yeah. help me, help me. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? We often struggle to recruit good lifeguards in the industry or and we don't always retain them for very long because they're always going on to other things if it's uni students or that. But actually, there's a whole potential workforce that we've not tapped into because either they don't think it's inclusive or accessible and we've not ever explored, you know, how accessible or inclusive it can be. Um, so I, I intend to break down some of those barriers. Well, th th that was my next question is, you know, you've you've achieved that qualification. What's your next step? And I'm not talking about career wise. I'm, I'm talking about what's your next step in yeah, about so, getting that out there? Um, you know, exactly. You know, that. Look so at I, me. Um, I took it as typical Helen Star. I took it a step further again um, <laughs> and then trained as a um, trainer assessor for the RLSS. Okay. Um, so as well, right? I have since delivered um, multiple courses and assessed multiple courses. And I take my role quite seriously around that in terms of right, who's on the course, who's applying to be on the course. Are we accessible in how we're advertising the course? That whole piece. Um, and gradually over time, hopefully I can influence that tipping point of how other trainers um, view people who can do those qualifications. Um, as part of my trustee role with the RLSS as well, um, I've been working really closely with Joe Talbot um, around creating some training for trainer assessors. Um, we're currently putting together an online CPD around how can trainers make their courses more inclusive and accessible. Um, you know, and we just need to change that that culture and thinking. And every TA we turn around, that's another one out in the industry that will hopefully be looking for for people who we can bring into our workforce. So you haven't you haven't got number two yet. As in, you haven't got the second wheel, wheel, you know, someone else who's confined a wheelchair as, as a lifeguard yet. No, you haven't found that person. No, well, maybe someone is, will listen to um, this and go, oh. There is a guy, I think he's missing a lower limb, um, who he uses a wheelchair sometimes, but he's not a trained swimming teacher. Um, so, but no, there, there absolutely needs to be more. And it's not even just about someone in a wheelchair. It's, you know, I get you couldn't necessarily be blind and be a lifeguard, but you know we've got there is um, lifeguards who are hard of hearing and things we can put in place to support them. Oh, and listen, do, do you know when you say that? Like, I was actually going to confess to that at the end of your sentence here, but you've actually brought it up because God forgive me. Back in the day, I had a member of staff who this is way back. I'm going thirty plus years ago who went deaf, and I virtually kicked them off the deck. And it was it was interesting when I reflect upon it and, the, and going back, and even my my bosses and the peers, et cetera, et cetera, and the medical fraternity and all the rest of it. Well, he can't be a bloody lifeguard. Sure, he can't hear a damn thing. How's he going to hear somebody shout and scream? Yeah, because that was the perception of what it yeah. was like to drown. Oh, you have to hear them screaming. Whereas we all know that that's not how it happens. It's just, it's one of the most silent things that happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was that was the um. That's how we dealt with it, you know. Oh, yeah. Get him off the deck. We move yeah. him elsewhere. And so we might have had the most, the best observation skills in the world, and stuffed everybody else into the ground because of his yeah. lack of hearing, yeah. or his, he his hearing deteriorate. But we, it wasn't happening. Oh, no way! And it was always the negative. Something happens in this pool, and he's on the deck. Oh, well, how yeah. are we going to stand on that? That was just the way it was in yeah, the 80s, 90s, time, you know, there it? was different times, but it still sticks in me sometimes. You go, oh, yeah, we um. At the London Aquatic Centre, we did have a lifeguard who was hard of hearing um, and obviously a risk assessment was done and there was a number of measures put in place that we had a, an alarm that was a visual light and things like that. So it's doable um, but, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and there's a whole process to support that in way of, you know. It's all about ad yeah. adapting, isn't it? It's about how, how the facility adapts to help. I mean, I do know, in fact, we're working with a client at the minute and with some some technology we're installing where we've got um one of the lifeguards is is very hard of hearing wears a couple of hearing aids and struggles but the facility over the years has adapted for that mm -hmm. individual and we're having to do some adaption as well because mm -hmm. a lot of what we do is okay we've visual indicators but we also have sound indicators yeah so yeah because I used to say, because some, you know, some of our visual indication and sound indications that we we pass the lifeguards. I used to joke and say, well, maybe if we just put a wee electric shock through the the chair would be a good idea. I I think I can get away with that because I used to be a lifeguard and I used to know what it was like the head starting to nod because you'd been yes. sitting in thirty one oh, degrees gosh, for yeah. three hours and and 
the supervisor wouldn't let you off the deck because you'd annoyed him that morning. Yeah, but that's gosh. I put that all down to, to to experience. How did you get into GLL then? Sort of on the 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 last role that you did before you came to Circle. Yeah, I was again right place at the right time. Um, so because I'd done all my STA portfolio of swim teacher qualifications um, at the London Aquatic Centre as well as my NPLQ, um, they'd hired me as a casual swimming teacher. Um, so I was just rocking up from Bognor to Stratford once a week to teach some lessons. Um, conversations just started. Um, at the time, aquatics was in quite a bad way at that pool um, for a number of reasons, change of people, um, some management issues, all sorts of things going on. And an opportunity presented itself to create a new role um, of aquatics manager um, for that site. Um, there hadn't been one for a number of years, but again, a number of reasons behind that. Um, so, I was really lucky that I created my own job um, oh, and convinced it. GOL to let me do it. <laughs> They're always the best ones. Um, you know, and, but what and you want say, 100 grand a year, did yeah, you say? Yeah, if only. <laughs> um, no one works in leisure for the money, do yeah. they? Yeah, um, no, definitely. You know, yeah. credit to GOL in that, you know, they were open to my thinking and open to this opportunity. Um, so I started um, August 2019 with them. Um, as aquatics manager at the London Aquatic Centre, mm-hmm. um, biggest single site swim school in the UK. Yeah. Um, so headed up Beautiful that. Site, we yeah. we also have um, or had Dive London there, the Tom Daly Diving Academy. So I looked after anything aquatics within that building. Um, massive opportunity. I'd never run a swim school in my life. <laughs> <laughs> And here I was running the biggest one in the UK. Um, Because you blagged it. (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, um, but it it was incredible. Um, I learned as I went. um, I'd inherited a team of swim teachers who weren't engaged, weren't motivated. um, And actually what I was able to do, a lot of how I became a manager at Disney, I could just bring those skills over to GOL. And actually, if you make people feel good about coming to work, they're going to do a good job for you. You know, and it was most of what nothing I did was rocket science at all. Um, It was just about how do we treat our people? How do we build a team? How do we get people excited to come to work? Um, And actually, I what the team that we created over time, um, the teachers that I had were incredibly skilled, incredibly talented. And they they were passionate about delivering the best swimming lessons for our customers. Um, And I I was hugely proud of that. you know, it's, it so was it's incredible. Just, it's, it's a good people people management. I know it, was, it, it used to be called man management, and I still use that terminology. But good people management, yeah, and getting the best out of people, and yeah, and it's, know, it's a, a secret. No matter what your background is, really, isn't yeah, it? that's it. There's a way to talk to people. Um, I am known as being quite a strict. Um, often harsh manager but I'm always fair um, and I think people need to know what's expected of them and they need to be given feedback and shared goals and that whole piece um, and it took time but the team we evolved into very proud of um, loved it absolutely loved what I was doing there and then Covid hit um, you know yeah um, that, that, that was another change in event oh it? my gosh I I I've recently just reflected on that day that we closed Leisure back in March 2020. And it's a day that will haunt me for the rest of my life in that I had to do a a poolside briefing with my swim teaching team and say, you know what, we're closing tonight. We don't know when we're going to reopen and I don't know whether we're going to even pay you. Um, It was horrific. Had teachers in tears. I I shed some tears privately that night because I didn't have the answers. Um, and as we now know what unfolded, um, you know, we thought at the time we might be closed for four weeks. <laughs> yeah. I, I got that funny, wrong. <laughs> I, I had, well, listen, a lot of us did. And, and I, I, it's interesting because I had a similar conversation with Joe Talbot, you know, about the the shock of the 23rd of March last yeah. year. And you know, I was in the same boat. I thought it was a few weeks. And I suppose that's one of the good things about your LinkedIn's and your Facebook's looking back and going, you know, yeah. we hadn't a bloody clue. No. I will just tell you this little story. Um, it, it's going back a few minutes to something you said. We were talking about you, you managing people, etc. And a bit of a, to use the term, your term, I think, bull in a china shop sometimes. No pun intended. But last night I happened to be watching a programme about Jack Charlton. Uh, mm. That famous, uh, won, won the World Cup with England in 1966. But more famously, um, managed Ireland and took them to their first ever uh, European and World Cup finals, che- you know, was part of a big change in the, in in how Ar- what Ireland thought about itself and and how Ireland emerged 
um, in the 80s and 90s. But he, the, the program last night was talking about he, he was known as a really good people manager. Mm-hmm. He, he did a really good job and he, and he knew all his players very well. And that was his strength. But one of the notes that came up last night, he was a, he was a note taker. He wrote notes all the time. Mm-hmm. And they've set up an exhibition in Dublin where they've put all these notes. But one of my favourite ones that he... Because there's a lot of little nuggets of man management. But the one of my favourites last night was he, he, he'd written down at some point, um, be a dictator. And then he wrote under in brackets, but be a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant because he was very much it's my way or the highway, but he yeah. just got a way of bringing people along. So that, whenever you said what you said there, I just thought Jack Jordan. <laughs> yeah, take that as a compliment. That's exactly, and you can deliver the toughest of message. Actually, if you deliver it from a, a human <laughs> a perspective, and yeah, <laughs> I know people often say that about me that I'm so smiley and bubbly that then I'm almost the silent assassin that I'll then deliver a really brutal message. And um, while smiling, I can't help it. <laughs> yeah, you're fired. One of the things I wrote down here, because we talked about it earlier on, very briefly in the conversation, I'd like to nearly finish in this, was uh, when you spoke about Jeff Ellis and 1020. Yeah. I'm not wanting to be controversial in any way, shape or form. You know, I've got my views in the 1020. I don't particularly like it. As I said to you at another stage, I don't think we've got an alternative yet. I'd be interested in just getting your views on it at the minute. I'm not looking for an answer, but I just it, it always interests me what people think about how we got here and, and how they see a way of developing and shaping life garden. Yeah, um, I, I think I share very similar views to you. Um, that whole 1020 concept is, is really old now. It's, you know, it's a long time since that was yeah. created. Um, my worry with the whole 1020 thing is I, I worry it sets lifeguards up to failure, to fail in the, in their head. They're thinking, oh, I've got 10 seconds to do this or 20 seconds to do this. Whereas actually, I think we need to peel it back a little bit and focus more on their ability to scan and to assess and the speed of reactions that I'm not sure 1020 covers what we need for a lifeguard in 2021. You know, um, if, I had my magic wand. Um, I'd really like to try and set up a working group to really understand what we like about that, and what we might not like about that, and and then try and um, see if there's ground for evolving that concept. Um, you know, I think there's some some healthy debate to have around that for sure. Yeah, yeah, because there's certainly not a lot of science about it. Where no. we've got an opportunity to use technology and science to, to help develop that. But yeah, I, I like what you're saying about some sort of a working group to get together. And strangely, I think, you know, I think in the minute in the UK, we're on the cusp of huge change as far as lifeguarding goes. Yeah. Maybe COVID, the pandemic was a catalyst for this. Um, but whatever it is, it's, I think it's going to be fun riding that wave and, and making yeah. those opportunities. And strangely, I also think Brexit is part of this too, because yeah. people have got that opportunity to say, we're an island, you know, yeah. to have that island mentality again. Yeah. Um, where Agreed. you're not caught up in all the ISOs that were a big melting pot of, of, you know, 20 odd countries, whatever it was in the EU version of events or what suited them. Yeah. And, and that can cause nothing but conflict. But I think if, I think there's an opportunity. Yeah. I think there's an opportunity for the UK just to go, do you know what? Let's just do it our way. Yes, absolutely. We're in a different time now. Um, and there's a few conflicting things that are happening that we need to be really careful about. We've got many leisure operators who are desperate to cut back on running costs and lifeguard staffing costs. Um, and they don't always necessarily understand what other tools might be there to support them in terms of things like pool view and that whole blended lifeguard approach that I think certainly for you and your role, um, and the work that you do, you've got this massive opportunity to really educate pool operators around what does blended lifeguarding look like um it's it's not about cost saving i get the pressures operators are under we're under similar pressures but actually we need to make sure that our lifeguards have all the tools they need to do their job efficiently and that to me is the overriding principle that we need to work with here yeah i mean i just like you know, it's not about pool view. To me, it's just a bit challenging. You know, yeah. you know, I hate that we've always done it this way. Yeah. There's a lot of good people out there. Um, at I would suggest the lower level here are keen to look. Let's just exactly what you're saying. Let's have a look and see what we can do to make to give our lifeguards 
more protection, better opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think that's a good note to finish on, Helen. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to your story today and having a conversation. Um, certainly a very interesting life. <laughs> and, and the next time I see you, I'll be, be sure to wear my Mickey Mouse badge, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever well, point with one finger. <laughs> yeah, don't, uh, yeah, I'll take that. That might be the headline. You know, don't ever point with one finger. <laughs> Listen, you take care of yourself and look after okay. yourself and keep doing what you're doing. Awesome. I'm sure our paths will cross in the near future. And thank you very much once again. I'm sure. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon, Helen. Take, take care. care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>